Hey, good morning. It's good to be here again up front with a uplifting passage about handing people's flesh over to the devil to be destroyed. And <laughs> I get those ones quite often. They, something about my personality, I think, that brings them to me. But for those of you who are joining us for the first time or haven't been around uh, with previous talks in this particular series, we're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. We're working our way through the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians to deal with issues in the church. It's evident that he had received report backs of what was going on in Corinth, and he addresses, first of all, the attitudes of the leadership of the church, and he talks about the way that they are considering themselves to have arrived, their arrogance, their preference, they, they consider themselves connoisseurs of, of preaching. They select their favorite preachers, some like Paul, some like Cephas, some like Apollos, and they quite arrogantly form factions to support the personalities of preachers rather than the word that's being preached. And then he talks about the fact that they feel they've arrived, that there's nothing more that they need to do, that they are what a church should be. And he talks, first of all, about attitudes, but today we're going to look at actual, a practical incident that he raises with them. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the first eight verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality amongst you, and a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man, on the one that has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole bunch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may find, may be new, uh, sorry, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. There's something happening in the church in Corinth in spite of their attitude, in spite of their pride in what they think they have as a church, that even the pagans would not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul is concerned that rather than addressing this issue, the church has rather glossed over it and been proud of who they are. Sometimes it's not convenient to admit our weaknesses. Sometimes it doesn't fit the pattern that we're trying to create, the image that we're trying to create in the Corinthian church had arrived. So for them to admit to there being something broken inside the church was difficult. And he says, instead of being proud of your church, you should be in mourning. He says, it's actually reported, it's, it's a real incident, it's not even uh, tolerated by the pagans. And he says, and you are proud. He doesn't say what they're proud of. Some people, I, I read quite a few different commentaries on this as I was preparing, as you would imagine. I thought, where am I going to get something about this? Um, and some people think that the pride was in the fact that the man might have been a, a person of quite some status in town, and they were proud to have him in the church and were prepared to overlook his sins to have him in the church. Others think it was just the pride of what they thought they had accomplished and the failing to, to acknowledge that, to break the image that they had. But he says you are proud. And he talks about the fact that they have basically overridden 
godliness with an image that they're creating. Also, it's possible that some of them were following a teaching of what people nowadays call hypergrace, that because when we sin, God's grace is evidenced, that the more we sin, the more God's grace is evidenced, and therefore it's okay to sin. Believe it or not, there's still people who believe that, and they rejoice in their sins. And I just want to read from uh, Romans 6 verse 1, it says, What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that the grace may increase? It's a theology which some of them might have had which turns grace into a license to sin rather than into something that saves us from that sin. So he is distressed with them. He's distressed with the fact that they haven't done something about it, and he begins to take charge in verses 3 and 4. Paul exercises his apostolic authority in this situation. He says, although I'm not there with you, I'm with you in spirit. Now, he's not saying that he's astral traveling. Okay, he's not saying that actually while I'm sitting here where I'm writing the letter, I'm somehow traveling to be with you and I'm looking over your shoulder and see what's happening. He's saying, I was there at the birthing of your church. I birthed this church. I spent a year and a half establishing this church. I have an authority given by God to me to speak into your lives by the Spirit. And even though I'm not physically there, I'm distressed in my spirit and I'm distressed in my understanding by what is going on in the church. And so I'm going to reach into that situation as if I was there. Now, to some extent, there's an air of authority that goes with that, that he's saying, I'm overriding. But there's also almost, as, as we read this passage better, there's a sense that he's almost giving them a covering to do something quite radical, because what he's going to instruct them to do is something really radical. He's going to say, put this person out of the church. Turn your back on this person. Don't have fellowship with this person. Let the consequences of their behavior take its course. And that's quite a serious thing to do. In some church communities, they talk about excommunicating a person, walking away from the person. It's not just saying, we are rescinding your membership. It's saying, we don't want you here while you're doing this. Now, we'll talk about what has happened before this, before we get to this point. But this is Paul taking authority and saying, we need to, and he says this, For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a, a rare occasion in which we are encouraged to pass judgment. What we're going to see, if you look at the, the, the uh, King James translation, it says this man has his father's wife. This was not a casual fling. This was not somebody who had stepped over the line once in difficult circumstances and then in brokenness and repentance come to the church and said, I've seen deep descent. This is somebody who is sitting proudly in the church knowing that this is continuing in their life, this is impenitence in this, this is them saying, I'm entitled to keep doing this and be part of this church. And Paul says, as one who is present with you, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul gives instruction to hand the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What does this mean? Some of the commentaries I read, people generally thought it meant hand the flesh over that this person will die. So hand them over for the physical destruction of their flesh. I'm not sure if you... I just need to find my place. I've got a bit lost here. Hold on a moment. 
If you look in Timothy, Paul on one other occasion talks about handing people's flesh over to the devil. And listen to what he says there. He says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to conscience, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Armenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. It appears that this is a corrective situation if they were allowed to be so. He's saying, well, some people say, let their flesh be destroyed physically. Others are saying, it's that the carnality be destroyed. Hand them over to Satan so that the consequences of their life come to reality in their lives. Now, there are a couple of scriptures that indicate that the fellowship of the church and the fellowship of the family of believers is a protection to those that are amongst the family. Um, if you read... In Acts chapter 27, verses 23 to 26, Paul is talking to the people on the ship that he's, he's, you know, he went through a shipwreck or several shipwrecks, but one is described in Acts where they're being driven before a storm for days. And Paul stands up just before they get shipwrecked and he says, do not be afraid. He says, an angel stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. And God is gracious to give you the lives of those who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith that it will happen, just as he told me. He says, because I am with you and you are in my presence, God has given me your safety. The influence of godly people is a protection to those around them. There's another place where this is mentioned in Corinthians, and it talks about families. It says, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, the children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. It says the presence of a committed, born-again Christian in your family, in your life, is a partial covering for you. It doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven because they said you're going to go by proxy. But it means that there is an impact on your life by having these people around you. In a practical way, they can speak wisdom and protection into your life. In a practical way, they can pray for you. But to hand someone out of fellowship with the church, Paul is saying, withdraw that covering let that person be put away from that covering, from that protection, from that prayer covering, so that the consequences of what they've done may bite, so that they may realize and repent and walk away from that and be restored. It's a scary thing to think that the Apostle Paul, who was so concerned and, and traveled so far to bring people into the community of God, is prepared to say to that community, reject this person. As I said, it's not just rescinding membership, it's saying, you need to leave, we don't want you here. You need to go out into the world of not being protected by this community and walking in the consequences of the behavior that you have chosen. This is not something that's done for somebody who makes a mistake and comes to church and says, I'm deeply repentant. This is something that's being said of Paul about somebody who says, the church needs to accept my sin. God needs to accept my sin because this is something that I prefer. I think it's okay for me to do this. And the church is letting it happen. And Paul is saying, you can't let that happen. Why do we think so? Why must the church respond in this way? Well, I think that there are a couple of reasons. The first one is to protect the church itself. If you have a situation in the church where the whole community knows that someone is walking in deliberate and, and uh, impenitent sin, unrepentant sin, and you as a church community and as a church leadership let that continue, you are saying to other people, that's okay. You can bring 
your brand in. You can bring your particular sin that you prefer into the church. And if we are consistent and consequent in what we're doing, we won't upbraid you either. We won't respond to you either. It is saying, essentially, that people can panel beat the church into what they want it to be to accommodate their sin. You know, years ago, I had a, a member of my staff whose husband left her for a close family friend. And he divorced her and he began to live with this woman. And they found a church that was made up of a whole bunch of people who'd done the same thing. And they found a way to justify what they were doing. The good part of the story is two years after he left his wife, he came to repentance and came back to her and said he had done wrong. He came back to the eldership of the church and repented and he put himself under authority to be restored. And they have remarried after he had to ask permission, not just of her, but of her children. He had to court her from day one. She really made him walk the line. And they've now been remarried for about, how long, Sue, you know them? About 30 years? About 20 years. They run a marriage restoration course. And I spoke to him when he came out of this deceit that he'd been walking. I said to him, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? How could you think that you can fit this into your theology? And he said to me, well, I looked at it this way. The Bible says I must love my wife. And I wasn't loving my wife. I was loving another woman. So I figured every day I did that, I was sinning. If I leave my wife, that's one sin and it's over. And then I can go and marry the other woman. I mean, that's how he had deceived himself. He had said to himself, this is a godly solution to what I've created by lusting after another man's wife. The consequences of living away from God brought him back to a place of repentance and restoration. So, but there needed to be also, in this situation, a clear message to the church, this is not acceptable. God will not just take your sin on board because you've found a way of philosophy to work your way around it. Secondly, the reputation of the church needs to be protected. I think we all know that right now, across the British Isles, there have been situations where situations are coming to light where there's been abuse of young people and abuse of, of people in orphanages and schools and so forth that have been kept quiet for the reputation of the organization that was responsible. And actually what it's done in the long term is destroy the reputation of those organizations. The church, when we find things that are wrong, need to own up to that and do something about it and be transparent in doing that and be seen to be doing that so that both the credibility and reputation and testimony of the church is protected, but also the teaching of the church. How can we teach one thing and live another thing? How can we teach one thing and say to people, well, that's what we believe, but if the circumstances are right, we'll just turn a bit of a blind eye. So it was necessary to do this. How does discipline in the church take place according to Scripture? Do you think that this guy sinned, everybody heard about it, they talked to each other, someone said to him, stop, he said no, and they went to the elders and said, well, this has happened, and Paul says, throw him out, cast his flesh out to the devil so that his soul may be saved. There's a process that's recommended. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they have listened to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So the first step, if you become aware of somebody who's in impenitent, unrepentant sin, the first thing you do is go and talk to them. Somebody needed to have gone to this man and said, what you are doing is wrong. And one assumes that somebody has done that. That what you're doing is wrong. But you don't go 
and stand up in front of the church and say, I have a suspicion that Humphrey's having an affair. I'm going to see him on Thursday. I'll let you know what's happening. You go in private to that person and say, this is what's been going on, what's happening. You take scripture and you point out to them that they've done wrong. And if they then say, I repent, I needed someone to challenge me, then they have been restored and it does goes no further. You don't go back to church and say, I went to see Humphrey. It's a private matter. That's the first step that's advocated. If that doesn't work, then it says take some witnesses with you. Take people with you to establish that what you have said was correct and that this person's response is indeed what you believe this person's response to be. But be careful who you take with you, especially if you're someone who doesn't like Humphrey. Don't take a couple of other Humphrey haters along with you. We're going to sort this guy out good and proper. Now, who doesn't like him? Okay, here we go. We're going, to, we're going to bring this guy down a notch or two. Take impartial, godly people, established people, people that know God's word, people that walk in compassion and walk in good testimony themselves. It's hardly useful to take someone along to address Humphrey when you yourself are doing all sorts of things that are not right. So take people of good testimony. If they don't, then the matter comes to the church. And by the church, I believe they mean first and foremost the church leadership who can evaluate that and then... When that process has taken place, if Humphrey has still then said, no, I will continue sleeping with my father's wife, I will continue doing this, I'm not repentant of it, I believe I have the right to do it, and I'm not walking away from this, then comes the time that there is a situation where Paul says, hand this person over. Is there restoration? Of course it's possible. That's what the purpose of it is, I believe. In 2 Corinthians 2 verses 5 to 9, there is... A reference to someone who's being restored, and some people would think it might be this person. I'm not so sure I do myself, but it says this in 2 Corinthians 5, sorry, 2, 5 to 9. It says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test of being obedient in everything. This is the second letter of Corinthians. Some people think this might be the same man being restored. I think the fact that Paul says, if there's anything to forgive, seems to indicate it wasn't this case, because this was very clearly something that was wrong, so it doesn't seem to be any ambiguity in, in, in this one. But he goes on then, so we have the situation where he says, there's an actual situation that's taken place. You've been proud. You haven't done anything about it. Do something about it. This is what you should do. And he instructs them to follow the procedures that have been laid out to put this person out of the church. He goes on, because he's not finished. He says, your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole bunch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's talking about the feast of the Passover, and one of the things that happens when Jewish people celebrate the Passover feast is they go through the house and they take out any kind of yeast, any kind of, of, of starter or fermentation. It's got to be out of the house because that is a symbol of corruption to them. And it's supposed to be symbolic of cleansing out and preparing yourself for the Passover and to give yourself entirely to God. And he says to this church, while you are boasting, there's still leaven left in your church. And a little leaven leavens the whole, whole batch. I'm not a baker. 
not by any stretch of the imagination. I have made a couple of soda breads. They were edible. Um, but I prefer a good bakery, to be honest with you. But I do understand that if you put some yeast into a batch of dough, if you've got a lump of dough in front of you and you put some yeast into that side, it doesn't just leaven that side of the, of the, of the, the loaf. It starts a chemical reaction which spreads through the whole batch of dough. It spreads evenly through the whole batch of dough and everything begins to puff up. Paul says to these guys, don't leave a little bit of leaven in the community thinking it'll stay there. If you, if you leave this guy doing what he's doing, corruption will spread. It won't just be that you can ring fence it and say, okay, we have a wonderful church, but Humphrey, not so good, but we just keep Humphrey in the corner. He says, if you allow this kind of thinking and this kind of disobedience to be part of your church, it's going to spread through the whole lump. It's going to leaven the whole batch. And he says, it, doesn't, it shouldn't be amongst you. You shouldn't be like that. I want to read you something that I found interesting. When I was looking at different references to look at this passage, I came across the notes of a sermon written by a pastor on a morning that they were having to do this in their church. And it was a broken-hearted passage that he'd written because they had a member of the church leadership, a person who was a missionary in their church who was in unrepentance and who was blatantly in adultery and refused to come out of it and refused to apologize for it or, to, or ask forgiveness for it. And they were moving towards us. And this is what he wrote, because Paul talks about motives, why people, why were the Corinthian church not putting this man to rights? Why were they not chastising him? Why were they not correcting him? He says, I think it should give us great pause, even shock, that the diagnosis of the problem at Corinth is exactly the opposite from the diagnosis in many churches today. Today, when discipline doesn't happen, the diagnosis is often that we are too humble to discipline a person. Who are we to point a finger? Who are we to judge? Who are we to cast the first stone? And so, as supposed humility has made the basis of tolerance of impenitent immorality in the church. On the other hand, today, if a church does follow through on discipline, it's often diagnosed as coming straight from a pharisaical pride. Indignation at sin is often portrayed as a cloak of insecurity and a veil over the Pharisees' own sexual temptation. So what he's saying is when a church does respond to someone and chastise them for this, it's basically considered you think you're better than they are. How can you arrogantly, how arrogant to put a person out of fellowship? How, how arrogant a humble person would overlook their sin? Now, that may be true in some cases, but it does give you pause when you're thinking hard and examine our hearts, as I did, when you read in verse 2 that Paul's diagnosis of the problem at Corinth was exactly the opposite. Their arrogance was the basis of tolerance, and broken-hearted humility should have been the basis of excommunication. The church should, in humility, have come before God and said, we have not done what needed to be done. We are sorry, we are broken, and out of a love for God and a desire for the right thing to be done, we should put this... Con uh, this process into place he's saying you're proud you're arrogant in your supposed acceptance we're okay we we don't judge people we and we shouldn't judge people but we can't allow unrepentant sin to be the evidence of our of our fruit just to close i've written this we should not be concerned about this when it involves, or just concerned about this when it involves dramatic situations such as the incest described here. It should be addressed to those minor sins which we choose to overlook because that's just who I am. Things like gossip and temper and cutting humor and white lies and dissension. What am I saying? There is a very stern message here, but this is not 
This kind of situation doesn't arise often, and hopefully it's not going to be something that you're going to experience in, in your day-to-day -day church life. I can assure you that if it does come to our attention as the leadership of the church that you're sleeping with your father's wife, we will come and see you. But it's not the kind of thing that we're expecting to have to deal with. It's a, it's a very unusual set of circumstances, this. But you know, we, we, we sometimes leave a little leaven because we say, because I do this well, because I love God, and I go on mission, and I go to home group, and I give my tithe and my offering, and I help the poor, God can put up with my temper. I quite like the fact that people are scared of me in the office because I blow up. So I'm just going to leave that a little bit there. That, that's my little permitted sin. That's my little impenitent sin. Or you might be the most sarcastic person on the block, able to flay people's skin off their bodies with your tongue. And you say, because I'm good at my job, because I get the results, because I, I've got good sales quotas and things are going well in the office, that, yeah, people just have to live with that. That's my little bit of... That's what, it's me. And the Bible seems to indicate to us here that that's not okay. It's not okay to leave those little unimportant, constant white lies and things that we just permit ourselves a little bit of sin. That leavens the whole lump. That begins to creep through. God is not looking for us to say, these are the things I will surrender to you with, Lord, and these things I will serve you. This is my stuff, leave it alone. I, I talk sometimes about the fact that people sometimes when they get born again say, I asked Jesus into my life. Now, I know what people mean, but I take a little bit of an issue with that because I didn't, in fact, ask Jesus into my life. I gave my life to him. I told a little story at, at, at Foundations two weeks ago that I told my children at school, and I might have told it here, but forgive me, but a guy built a flat for Jesus in his house. Built him a really nice flat on the second floor took up a substantial percentage of the house. It was very well equipped and very modern. This is not a true story, by the way. This is an illustration. <laughs> Book of Imaginations, chapter 3, verse 4. <laughs> he invites Jesus to live in the flat in his house, and he sets everything up, and Jesus moves in and says, thank you. And the next morning, there's a knock on the door. He opens the door. There's the devil. He says, I've come to trash your house. Comes in, rips up the carpets, pulls down the curtains, smashes the crockery and the cutlery, breaks the electronics, goes upstairs, trashes everything, doesn't go into Jesus' flat. Leaves and says, I'll see you tomorrow. Moment is gone, the guy's up the stairs knocking on Jesus' door. He says, where were you? The devil was here. Jesus says, I know, I was in the flat where you told me to be. He says, well, look what he's done to my house. Jesus said, I'll help you fix it. So they went around that morning, and with Jesus' wonderful ability, he restored the house to its previous state. And this guy thought, well, you know, I, I'm grateful for that. Jesus, would you like the whole top floor of my house? You can take the whole top story. That's yours. Jesus said, thank you. Next morning, there's the old red guy again with his fork and his pointed tail. I've come to trash your house, and he's in there, and he does the whole thing again to the bottom floor, but he doesn't go up the stairs. As soon as he goes, the guy's up the stairs. Jesus, Jesus, where were you? I was here where you put me. But the devil was here, I know. He wrecked my house. I'll help you fix it. And as they're fixing the house, Jesus says to him, why don't you give me your house? Sign it over to me. Put it on my name. We can live here together. You have the run of the whole place. You're not restricted anywhere. My house is your house, but make it my house. And so the guy thinks, I'm going to lose it anyway. So he signs it over to Jesus, and he goes to bed and thinks, that's the last of that. And he has a great sleep that night, the next morning. And he goes, oh, no. 
Starts with the door and he hears footsteps coming down the stairs. And Jesus says, sorry, my house, I'll open the door. Opens the door and there's a loud scream and dust and the little red man with a pointed tail and the fork is heading into the distance at high speed because he can't stand against the owner of the house. If I have a mindset that I'm inviting Jesus into my life, and I, I don't want to belittle that phrase, but I'm, I'm saying you can come into parts of my life. I always say I love watching these police stories. You know, the guys go and they, and they, they go into the house where there might be uh, some kind of bad guy, and they kick the door open, and they end with their, their pistols, and they clear, and then they go to the next door, and they kick it open. Holy Spirit doesn't come into your life like that. doesn't come in, <laughs> okay, God, this one's clear. Okay, this one's clear over here. He's gentle. He stands at the door and he knocks. And if we leave parts of our lives that he doesn't inhabit, those are the parts where the leaven begins to work. So there's a message for the church in general here, and there's a message about being clear and transparent in dealing with things that aren't right and not hiding them away for the reputation of the church, but rather enhancing the reputation of the church by dealing with them. But there's also a message for you and me. Are the little bits of leaven that we are saying... Well, look at the rest. The Corinthian church was saying, we, we have orators. We have wonderful preachers. We have a fantastic history. We are probably the biggest church that Paul planted. Look at all these things. A little bit of sin. Come on, give us a break. And Paul is saying, no, you've got to get that leaven out. Are people going to sin in the church? Absolutely. Are we going to excommunicate everybody? Absolutely not. There is a difference between the daily things that we do that leave us short of the glory of God, where His grace and His mercy reach out. And you notice, no point here did it say He's going to lose His salvation. At no point did it say He's going to lose His salvation. It said His flesh will suffer. That carnal side of Him will be exposed to the consequence of His behavior. There is grace, there is forgiveness, there is love in the church for any sin, for any sin, including what this man was doing. There would have been forgiveness if he repented, but he was unrepentant. I want to challenge us to look at those unrepentant parts of our lives, the parts that we hang on to and say, well, God, look at the other shiny parts I've given you. Look at the parts that, that are all functioning well, that people admire. This little dark spot here where I harbor the things that you don't want, just we'll keep that between us. It doesn't work that way. Let's take the lesson we have from here so we can be not leaven in our communities or have the leaven in our lives, but rather that we can be light that shines on.